You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2212 South Broad Street. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.church. Matthew thirteen twenty four to 30. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. Pause there for that moment. You ever been a gardener and you've had that moment of like, oh, crap. That's where this guy is right now. That is some petty stuff right there. (laughs) And the slaves of the householders came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, an enemy has done this. The slave said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, no. For in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the weed among them, along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, I insisted on reading the, um, the scripture and reading it first um, because I preached on a totally different uh, um, passage at Malton Pike this morning. And I started the sermon and the person who was going to read the the you know, gospel, hadn't actually read the gospel. So I was like talking about, and as you heard in the gospel reading, and I looked around and realized nobody had any idea what I was talking about. So now we know, and we're all on the same page, literally. So the scripture passage for today is among the rare few stories that Jesus not only explains, but even offers a very specific series of lessons he wants people to gain. Jesus explains the parable himself just a little bit later in 1336 to 40, straight from the mouth of God. From one perspective, therefore, this should be an incredibly quick sermon. With my only duty being to, or message, sorry, with my only duty being to explain who both the wheat and the weeds are, with the core lesson being that those who consider themselves the wheat have the duty granted directly from Jesus so that you know it's true to patiently bear being mixed in with the unrighteous until the end of time, when they'll be freed from being forced to live among the impure, gathered up into heaven while the weeds will be thrown into the fire, obviously of hell, to suffer along with the evil one. Open and shut case, no? Somehow I just can't leave it there. I can't help but wonder about what's not in this story and its interpretation. Whose voice, whose voices aren't being heard? What potential interpretations are we missing when we focus on what appears to be the literal meaning of the passage? Allow me to digress a bit and tell you three other stories, because tonight's a, a night of stories, which might help explain what I mean. Two will be from my childhood, ones which taught me the power of stories to hurt. I'll then tell a final story which taught me the power of stories to heal. 
When I was a child, my parents would often tell me two stories relating to my mother's pregnancy and my birth. One was absolutely hilarious and actually demonstrates a rather significant part of my personality. The other story is far more complicated and painful. Okay, some necessary things you need to know. One, I was born 18 months after my brother. Two, my, su my, my mother suffered a burst appendix as a child, which led to some rather significant or organ damage, including to her reproductive organs. Three, as a result of this damage, she was cautioned against birthing children. Four, perhaps most importantly, my mother was quite ill while pregnant with me. Now that we've let the scene, set the scene, let's begin. Every year, my parents would tell me the story of my birth. It was like a, a ritual we'd do, like, around the cake. The details never wavered. My mother would always begin by saying that she went into labor with me rather suddenly, without any of the slow buildup that many other people experience, and especially none of the warning signs that she experienced with my brother. As my mother tells it, my parents were putting my brother to bed, preparing him for what might occur over the next few days. Mommy beginning labor, family driving in to help with the first few days, how a sibling might change his life, etc. After they finished getting him ready for bed, my parents cleaned up from dinner, put the house back in order, and started to settle down for the evening. Suddenly, my mother felt intense, sharp labor pains, with contractions coming right on top of each other. And then she felt her water break. At this point, at 9 p.m., my parents had to figure out several things all at once, with two obvious ones being, one, who they could ask, last minute, mind you, to come over to the house and most likely spend the night with my brother, and two, how they would get to the hospital in the absolute quickest time possible. They solved one by knocking on the neighbor's door and basically begging, and they resolved two by my mom waddling over to the car and my dad driving like a bat out of hell. My dad, ever the rule follower, always made a point of noting how very fast he drove, all while terrified that he'd either get a ticket or have an accident. Not terrified that the you know, woman who is carrying his child is gonna have a baby, but he might get a ticket. My mother then derived great pleasure in relating how she burst into the ER, took one look at the person at the desk, and just screamed, baby! <laughs> a nurse ran over with a wheelchair and had barely finished wheeling my mother past the doors when I began to crown. The nurse stopped pushing the chair, dashed around, and apparently had to leap into a diving catch to keep me from going splat all over the tiles. As I said, sitcom material galore. Now, I want to note here that my parents never told my brother what his own thoughts were about all of this, even when he asked. He even begged to know where he fit into this foundational story of his own family. The main characters in this story were my parents, with even me, literally the baby in question, just being the initiator of the plot, and everyone else simply window dressing. The second story involves a series of visits my mother uh, made to the obstetrician during the first few months of my mother's pregnancy. My dad may have gone, but it was the, you know, 1979, 1980, and it's hard to tell if he would have been allowed in the room, but never mind. 
It's vital to mention that my mother was warned regularly about the potential health challenges pregnancy would bring for her. As she carried my brother without any difficulties, however, she was certain that she could easily carry me. She soon discovered that this was not going to be the case. As my mother told the story, and believe me, she told this story over and over and over again, seemingly to anyone who'd listen. Every doctor she spoke with during the first two trimesters urged my mother to consider aborting me as I was tearing my mother's insides apart. My mother would always insist that she couldn't even conceive of making such a decision, pun intended, and that she was going to do everything in her power to bring me into the world, even if it cost her life to do so. Now, whenever my mother told the story, she was the star of the show. No one else spoke, most notably my father, who always chose to remain silent and to keep his own thoughts about this health crisis unspoken. I actually never learned how my father felt about any of this. My mother's narrative was the narrative, entirely. Now, let me pause here to state that this story is not an anti-abortion narrative. My mother suffered from significant physical and psychic pain for my, for my entire life. And I've often wondered whether her life actually would have been better had she chosen to abort me instead of choosing to have me and then passing her pain and suffering onto my brother and me for decades. But I digress. These two stories were two foundational pillars of my parents' perception of who I was, what they understood their role as parents, and my role as child to be, and what responsibilities I had to my family as a result. You see, these stories, even the first amusing one, were never just stories. For my parents, and especially for my mother, they were means to remind me on an annual basis about my place in the family, my duties to it, and the inherent aspects of my personality, which I would need to curb in order to fulfill these duties. With these stories, she continually reminded me that I was impulsive, inherently selfish, and that my independent and rebellious streak was a danger to myself and to my parents. My mother certainly was a hero who would defend my right to exist at all costs, but she never let me forget it. My life was a gift given to me by my parents, a gift I had a duty to repay by fulfilling their vision of how I should live my life. Now, for years, I accepted their framing of the narrative as definitive and acted accordingly. It was only when I began to wonder whether there was something missing from the narrative that I began to truly see myself for the first time. And there is so much missing, not only from her narrative of the story, but also from her interpretation of the story and its meaning. This final story is about the first time I realized that I was non-binary. Now, I'd always known that I approached the world a little differently. You always know. But I always accepted my parents' two-pronged explanation for why I viewed the world so differently. One, and one I actually appreciate, I was a Christian. Therefore, God demanded from me a different approach to the world as a result. Two, 
I was a fiercely independent, knee-jerk anti-authoritarian who needed to rebel against everything and anything simply because it was there. Yes? Everything that went against the world's values were either explained by the first, where Christians so were different, such as the feminism, an intense focus on social justice my mother drilled into my head as being inherent in the nature of God, or it was dismissed as the second. You just rebel. For example, I explained my inability to have gender ever make sense to me by stating that as God had both feminine and masculine qualities, all the ways that women were oppressed were simply sinful and went against the nature of God. Gender, therefore, only made sense if it followed God's desire for the world. Therefore, I thought that, of course, I couldn't understand gender if it had only been presented to me in ways that rejected God's vision of justice. Problem solved. My need to push against the masculine roles expected of me by my family, however, was simply dismissed as me being a selfish rebel. On one level, I still think that the first statement makes sense. Nearly every framing of gender ever constructed fails to meet God's desire for the world. Yet there was always a something else which only clicked into place when I finally heard about the concept of non-binary genders. Suddenly, it was as if I had the key to the map, not only of my own life, but of the world itself. I wasn't just someone wedded to rebellion and resistance for their own sake, like some moody emo teenager, but I actually truly did think and relate to the world quite differently from others around me. It was a truly transformational moment for me, which unexpectedly ripple out into every other aspect of my life, I began to relate to stories in a radical new way. The approach I explained before. I insisted on asking questions. Whose voice is missing in this story? What interpretations are we missing if we accept the story at face value? How are we failing to see the narrative in its complete form? And finally, what are we importing into the story that isn't actually there? Now, this approach is conveniently enough called non-binary theology. These are some of the main components. One, God is always with the oppressed focused on both their needs and on alleviating their oppression. And with all due respect to Johnny Rashid, I don't think that God or Jesus make a choice. There is no choice. God is simply born this way. <laughs> God is inherently about the oppressed because that's just simply who God is. You cannot be God if you're not for the oppressed. It's just the nature of things. Number two, our place as humans is therefore always with the oppressed as well, if we are born in the image of God. Three, we need to keep listening for the voices which aren't being heard and seek to hear those stories. Four, we must always be creative, continuously reimagining the world and our place in it. And five, God rejects our binaries and instead creates a world as diverse and multifaceted as they are. 
In this way, non-binary theology exists in the spaces in between, rejecting the divisions of us and them, which are imposed upon humanity by our need to create binaries, whether they be good, evil, pure, impure, us, them, man, woman, or any other binary we create ourselves to make sense of the world. From that perspective, let's look at the parable anew, shall we? First, who are the children of the kingdom? The ones that are going to be the wheat. Who are they? The children of the kingdom are the wheat. The children of the evil one are the weeds. I bet that many of you are quietly thinking that you'd include yourselves in the camp of the children of the wheat, yes? The good ones. Why? What gives you the right to make such assumptions about yourselves? Second, who are the children of the evil one? If, for example, you're picturing a certain set of judges in robes, I'd recommend that you stop that nonsense right now. As Jesus himself says, as soon as you're certain of your own righteousness, you've begun to lose any claim that you might have ever had on being a children of the kingdom. I want you all to consider where you are importing your own binaries into this text. We see good and evil as binary, absolute opposites of each other. We then provide definitions of good and evil, which we strive our very best to root in Scripture and our understanding of Jesus, the liberator of the oppressed. We might even devote our lives to ensuring that we do all we can to bring about this good into the world. Yet as soon as we state that something is good, we are inevitably declaring that something else is bad. This is a dangerous road to walk down because once we decide that something or someone is bad, it is one very short step towards making the equivalence between bad and evil. And something, or again, someone, represents then the evil one. Now once we do that, we have no choice but to fight both the idea and its proponents with all of our energy, even to the point of defending actions as good that we would never accept from anyone else and would decry as bad, if not evil. This is empire thinking. For example, this is the kind of thinking we often praise, however unintentionally or reluctantly, when we celebrate July 4th and all that it represents. I wonder if at this stage in the game, we can really state with any intellectual honesty that the United Kingdom would have been a worse colonial master than the United States has proven to be across its history. Let's read the parable again. Did you see that the farmer allows the wheat and the weeds to exist alongside each other? Because, as verse 29 states, in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat among with them, along with them? 
This is essential. God does not give us permission to decide what is or is not good wheat. Instead, we are to live with everyone else in the field of this world, sharing resources. Remember, we are all inextricably independent on this fragile earth. We are just as bound up in the structures of the world as anyone else. We are just as likely to harm others as we are to help them. We are deeply dependent for our survival upon others, even and especially those whom we are certain are just simply evil. Did you catch who Jesus says will be doing the reaping? Separating the good from the evil? It ain't us, people. The Son of Man will send his angels to do that work. God is doing it. It's Jesus reaping, not us. It's not our job to decide who's evil, because as soon as we fall prey to that binary, we forget that harming the evil one will damage our own roots as well. And even uproot us entirely from the field of the world. This could result in us ending our lives or else leaving us adrift, literally rootless, cut off from the soil of God and from the connections we share with everyone else through the complexity of the roots planted deeply in the soil of God's creation. What then is our job? It's both surprisingly simple and unbelievably complex, both at the same time. Yes, even living God's desire for the world is non-binary. If we strive to be the good wheat, and yes, it is a choice for no one is born good or evil, but instead acts in evil and good ways, and as such brings either evil or good into the world. We must be as Jesus is, focused entirely on the needs of the oppressed and working to heal the world of this same oppression. Note that I said heal. No one has ever made soil better by dumping a bunch of poison into it. Anyone who does that has forgotten that we're independent, interdependent, sorry, in this field. And they've gone and poisoned themselves as well as everyone else. No one benefits from such a pyrrhic victory. This work is dangerous, difficult, and may even cost us dearly. It is work that will demand all of our energy, every ounce of our creativity, and every shred of our devotion and perseverance. In other words, all of everything that we are. It will require that we give up easy binaries and the easy interpretations of our foundational stories. It will call upon us to stop telling stories which hurt us and harm our relationships with each other, the creation, and with God. Instead, choosing those stories which heal and liberate all of us. Finally, it will demand that we cease to make ourselves the hero of the story and instead begin to see the story from the perspective of God, where we all have the potential to bring something necessary to the field of God's body. What is a weed anyway other than simply any plant that we don't want? Even dandelions can be the hero sometimes. So, as Rachel said, regardless of me being a covenant member of Circle of Hope, I will always still also be a Quaker. And one of the beauties of Quaker worship is the idea of being silent, waiting, and then hearing 
if God speaks to you to give a message. So I'm going to go and grab that chair. I'm going to pull it around here. So let's go ahead and take, you know, some time. Could be a few seconds, could be a minute, and just sit with this for a while. And then whenever you're ready, anyone, anytime, whatever, jump in and we'll start this talk back. Sounds good? All right. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected, visit circleofhope.church. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at circleofhope.net.